episode 98 of Sass Mouth James podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Peyton Place was made after Lana Turner left MGM, where she had spent 18 years under contract. She earned her only Oscar nomination for Best Actress playing Constance McKenzie, the single mother dress shop owner adapted from the controversial novel by Grace Metalius. Even though she was done with Metro, Lana showcases the acting techniques that defined a generation of stars, herself included, that they learned under acting coach Lillian Burns. Lillian and Lana joined MGM in the same year, 1937. Lillian recalled that she arrived in MGM the day that Irving Thalberg died. In many ways, she helped to fill the void left behind when the boy genius head of production died too soon. Thalberg famously had a talent for rescuing pictures of being able to figure out what went wrong and turn a stinker into a moneymaker. During a rehearsal with actors, Lillian could put her finger not only on what went wrong with her performance, but what didn't work in a script and why. Patiently, she would explain and demonstrate alternative ways to approach a scene. Lillian had both stage and screen experience. She had studied with Dame Lillian Bayliss, a renowned British actress. In addition to her technical knowledge about the acting craft, she shared with new contract players, Lillian Burns determined the type of parts that best suited an actress while the ink was still wet on a contract. Miss Burns had input at every level. She met with screenwriters, producers, and directors before she coached an actress for a picture. She directed the actress and her energy through practice and discipline, so they reached beyond a memorized script and made characters become real people for the camera. When an actress worked with a director who gave them no direction for what to do in a scene or with their part in a picture, 
Miss Burns took over. Studio boss Louis B. Mayer relied on her judgment. Miss Burns supervised screen test. She selected who was ready for big roles and a star buildup. If Mayer wanted to sign an actress but Lillian disagreed, the offer disappeared. Debbie Reynolds felt that Lillian was the most powerful woman in Hollywood precisely because she developed such a, a kinship with Mayer who took her word over anything else. Lillian was the type of woman who could take a Miss Burbank like Debbie Reynolds and make her into a star. Miss Burns worked with Lana from the beginning of her contract with Metro, but it was during their work together for Ziegfeld Girl in 1941 that made Lana a star. And really, Lana was the first star that she made. They rehearsed the famous scene on the stairs together in Miss Burns' apartment building so that Lana would be ready once they got to the set to shoot the picture. As Sheila Regan, Lana learned how to emote. As Miss Burns noted, Lana should have received a nomination for Best Actress for her role as the dissipated showgirl. You could not be a star in woman's pictures without knowing a dozen ways to give men the brush off. Miss Burns knew the ways. The head snap, the eyes that pop and narrow, the flared nostrils, they are remarkably effective techniques. And if you look at the women that came up through the 1940s and 1950s in MGM, they all have them. Lillian showed tiny women how to use their bodies to stand up against men, how to give the cold shoulder, how to show a man you will brook none of his impertinence. Lillian Burns gave technique to equip a generation of stars. Lana Turner turned the lessons to heart and harnessed it as her signature style. Lana mastered the MGM walk, head up, shoulders back with your butt cheeks tucked in. Lana explained the secret. Imagine a nickel between your cheeks and hold on tight. When she enters a room on screen, she's braced for what comes next. Even when Lana's character is at her lowest point in a picture like Madame X at the bottom of a bottle, she still has the MGM walk. Shoulders back, chin up, butt tucked in. No matter what calamity occurs, she'll face it and survive. Betty Davis once said that on the stairs, it was Martha Graham step by step. For Lana, it was Lillian Burns, every step she took on stairs or not. Miss Burns and Lana Turner left the studio both at the same time, 18 years after their contract started both in rejection of Dory Sherry's stewardship. Lillian hated the, the move towards dour message pictures that the studio was making once they got rid of Mayer, and Lana was stuck in dreary period pictures and had had enough. In 1957, when she signed to star in Peyton Place, Lana was no longer with Metro, but the craft she learned from Lillian Burns was by then a part of her DNA. Playing Constance McKenzie, Lana's body language is as potent as a slam door in a man's face. 
The look she throws Lee Phillips, who plays Mike Rossi, when he slides into her booth uninvited is a master class of acid glare. Lana slides her eyes over him and lets her mouth hang open. She mixes a bit of outrage and disgust in her reaction. Without a word, she lets him know that he's impertinent and clearly barking up the wrong tree. Lana is every woman who just wants a quiet cup of coffee and to be left alone with her thoughts until invariably some man interrupts as if it's his right. Had it not been for a charming wingman, Doc Swain, played by Lloyd Nolan, Lana would have bounced the new principal out on his ear. The man behind the counter laughs at Rossi's strikeout when he's leaving and jokes that he should see the doc about a frostbite treatment. In another scene with Mike Rossi, after they've spent a pleasant day driving around and eating lobster, Lana throws cold water on his romantic overtures. Lana faces him with her back to the kitchen sink, her arms extended behind her, splayed on the counter. It looks like she's physically claiming her home turf and looking for support from the house. Her point is she doesn't want to risk being made vulnerable and dependent on some man. For 16 years, Constance McKenzie has sworn off men. She's put a roof over her daughter's head. She owns the tweed shop. She has a cleaning woman. Constance is her own woman, independent, and she doesn't want to risk it all on some man. She snarls at Mike that all men are alike. She worries that sex spoils everything. Connie is repressed about sex for sure, but for a reason. Men bring trouble. It's risky. She fears pregnancy, rumor, scandal. Mike Rossi, on his part, offers a pretty good speech. He tells her he won't let her make anything dirty out of sex, and that sex is only a part of what he feels for her. If she's in his arms, it's a commitment. It means he'll care about her. He will worry about her. Lana kicks him out, gives him the high hat. She's the one who has to bear the consequences of what happened, just as she did years ago when she fell in love with a married man and then Allison was born. Constance McKenzie was one of many women we've seen in pictures from the 1920s and 1930s who sought their fortune and wound up being kept by a man. I'm only guessing most of them didn't fare as well as the owner of the tweed shop. Lana protects her reputation and guards against scandal. Constance has plenty of disapproval to go around. Allison, her daughter, played by Diane Varsi, and her friends receive a fair share of Connie's value judgments. In the dress shop, Lana takes a new inventory like every item is special and bound for a trousseau or a holiday trunk bound for overseas. Allison and her friends hang out in the shop. In a great scene, Betty Field, played by Terry Moore, uses sassmouth economics when she notes abruptly what other people think won't pay the rent. Betty has confidence that she can do what she likes at, no matter what the gossip is. But alarm bells ring for Constance, who has always fortified herself against the grapevine. 
Betty Field in a smashing coral dress shares some other gems, such as a low neckline will do more for a girl than the Encyclopedia Britannica. On the surface, Connie is shocked and unnerved by the way Betty talks about men and sex. She's shocked by her insouciance and forbids Allison from inviting her to the birthday party. Connie oversteps her bounds. The girl is 18, for God's sake, and should be able to choose her own friends. If Connie has the vapors over a bit of sass mouth, viewers know she has a bigger shock waiting for her when she returns home from the cinema and finds her house full of horny teenagers. The necking party scene must have made men in the production code office hot under the collar too. The lights are low in the house for the scene. Other than the music, you can't hear a sound. Everyone is paired off kissing. Girls are half reclined in big easy chairs while they're in men's arms. Russ Tamblin, as timid Norman, crouches in a corner, a voyeur, alone in the dark. In another room under a sprig of mistletoe, Allison kisses a boy. Lana flips on the light, stamps her foot, and calls an end to the makeout session. One lad makes light of it, explaining they were just playing a game of photography, where you turn off the lights and see what develops. Lana Turner is not here for sex jokes from a teenage boy. Lana is furious. Her eyes pop. With her shoulders square, back rigid, she sends them all home. Allison has been sexually humiliated and runs upstairs to her room. Every party winds up with the lights turned low, she tells her mother. The kids are graduating from high school. They're 18. In many ways, they're already considered adults. Most of the lads look 25 anyway, except for Russ Tamblin. But Constance acts out of fear that anything remotely sexual brings danger and can ruin uh, Allison's life. If she doesn't see it, she thinks she can keep it from happening. The mother-daughter conflict is the center of the picture. By Allison's view, it's that perennial struggle. Parents don't want their kids to grow up and live their own lives. Mothers want to control their daughters, and the daughters rebel. During their first row in the picture, Connie remarks that she wishes Allison would stop saying goodbye to the picture of her father on the mantle every day before she leaves for school. Lana worries the ring on her third finger left hand while they talk. It's a great gesture, especially when it's placed in context with the revelation that follows. Constance McKenzie had been a kept woman in love with a married man. She never married Allison's father. Tugging on the ring finger reminds Connie and the audience how much she clings to respectable appearances. Connie's vigilant about how things look on the outside. The picture resonated with Lana's daughter, Cheryl Crane. Cheryl was a big fan of the novel and was excited when Lana was cast in the picture. While she watched Lana in scenes with Diane Varsi, Cheryl recognized mannerisms she knew from real life. Cheryl felt like she was watching their arguments play out on the big screen. The lines between mother and star blurred for the first time. Cheryl saw behind the curtain of maternal authority, 
Which part was Lana acting at home when they had a row or in the studio with her pretend daughter? As far as Cheryl was concerned, watching her mother act broke the spell. Afterwards, when they argued, she could throw a devastating line at Lana. Stop acting, mother. It's easy to see why Peyton Place was so big at the box office. People often scoff that the picture watered down the controversial elements of the novel, but the screen version retains a frank discussion of sex that was not the usual run of things at the time. And just because Doc Swain clearly breaks the law and gives poor Selena Cross an abortion and blackmails his nurse to falsify records that it was an appendectomy, there are other reasons too. The picture hits at a larger social attitude that sex is dirty and should be kept hidden and attached with shame. In one scene, Allison tells Norman, the boy with the silver cord problem, that girls have the same feelings and desires as boys. That's a level of honesty that often goes missing today when we're only given the male point of view about sex. If teenagers only listened to adults, they would be pretty messed up. That's another angle that's driven home in that generational divide that Peyton Place looks at. Norman overcomes his mother's domination when he leaves Peyton Place and becomes a war hero, but it's really this earlier interaction with Allison where he connects with a young woman and learns that sex is normal and healthy that gives him hope for something better in life. Constance gets the same message from the school principal that sex is natural and nothing to be ashamed of. That's pretty radical stuff for 1957. The picture's rebuke against the negative attitude towards sex could also be applied to the Hayes Code that policed Hollywood for decades. From the opening scene, Peyton Place is full of social critique, from the ramshackle huts by the railroad tracks to the fate of Miss Thornton, who's passed over for the school principal job. Women might devote their whole lives to a career and be great at what they do, but in the end, some man comes along and takes the job. Peyton Place was one of the most political films of the decade. It said American values were a sham and that white picket fence was just a cover-up for hypocrisy and abuse. It's the first picture in Lana's melodrama period that ran until 1966 with Madame X. Give me Lana Turner in a gray suit breaking the mold of men's narrow expectations. It took Jerry Wald and Mark Robson five hours to convince Lana to star in the picture. She was only 36. Wasn't she too young to play a a mother to an 18-year-old? Wouldn't that tarnish her career as a sex symbol? The novel, though, was the hottest topic amongst everybody. In school, adults, whatever. It seemed like a big risk for Lana to take with an independent film career when she left MGM, but she eventually signed once the producer and director pointed out that Joan Crawford had won an Oscar for playing a mother with a teenage daughter, and that was Crawford's first starring role at the end of her 18 years in Metro. The comparison they drew was persuasive, and Lana agreed to star in Peyton Place. 
The picture was top of the box office for that year. It earned nine Oscar nominations, including one for Lana as Best Actress. Peyton Place didn't win anything, but it was so big that year it spawned a sequel and a long-running TV series. A Housewife from New England was the talk of the town in 1956 when the novel Peyton Place was published. Grace Metallius started writing in her aunt's bathtub when she was just a girl. She wrote stories, poems, and plays in the one room where she could find privacy and a bit of peace. In high school, Grace Metallius wrote original plays for a community theater group. The first script that she had staged with the group was a drag show featuring soldiers who were stationed nearby waiting to receive their orders. After she married at 17 and had three children, Grace continued to write. She had initially buckled under the family's poverty and hoped she could write her way out. Before Peyton Place, Grace had written another novel and tried to get it published. In the library one day, she looked up writer's agents. She chose one with a French-sounding name that sort of mirrored her own family heritage and sent him a five-page letter which explained her dream of being, of being a published author one day. The agent rejected the novel that she had on hand but asked if she had anything else. Grace was three-quarters of a way through her second novel. It was called The Tree and the Blossom. The agent took her on and sent out the manuscript, the second one that is. Leona Nevler was an associate editor in Lippincott who sorted through the slush pile. She read Grace's novel and mentioned the manuscript to Kitty Messner, the stylish head of Messner Publishing House. Kitty requested a copy and canceled her plans that evening to stay home and read it. The next day, she rang Grace's agent with an offer. Kitty Messner wore a beige pantsuit adorned with a white carnation the day she met with Grace to sign the contract. Kitty carried a cigarette holder. She had a dream career. She hired only women in her office and ate steak with horseradish sauce for lunch every day. She was tall and glamorous, the kind of woman you find on the big screen and in novels. Grace was starstruck. When Kitty decided to publish her novel, Grace struggled to buy groceries at that time. Gilmanton, the small town in New Hampshire where she lived, was in a summer-long drought and had, which had left her well dry for weeks. Grace and her family, a husband and three kids, hadn't been bathing. The nearest source of water they had was a local spring that was two miles away. The kids lived on peanut butter and marshmallow sandwiches. Grace was in desperate need of a miracle when she found a yellow telegram from her agent in the post. Grace traveled down to New York City to the Messner office to sign the contract. Kitty had given her an advance of $1,500. Then the agent took Grace to 21 for cocktails to celebrate. Grace remembered the melon daiquiri she ordered that was pale green and so cold it made her teeth hurt. Kitty Messner took over as the book's editor, but admitted that she asked for only a few changes to Grace's manuscript. As is often the case with a woman who writes a massive bestseller, some people always like to claim that the woman didn't really write the book. Kitty Messner, though, stated Peyton Place was the product of genius. 
She didn't want to meddle with it. Kitty's input was minimal, mostly to eliminate redundancies to the language. Some descriptive passages were removed, such as when uh, Grace is talking about new characters or describing landscapes or settings. Kitty asked for some changes. One thing she wanted to add was an additional love scene between the school principal and Constance, the part played by Lana Turner in the picture. Grace was reluctant to add it, but did so in Kitty's office, pounding out the scene on the keys in the publisher's typewriter with a cigarette hanging out, out of her mouth. And as she pulled the page out of the typewriter, she snarled, take your goddamn love scene. The incest subplot was a problem. Grace had explained that it was based on a real life story in her town. A local girl, Jane Glenn, had shot her father and buried him beneath the family sheep pen. Later, it came to light that the father had been raping Jane and her sister for years. Kitty suggested that it would be less objectionable to censors if Grace made the step, the, it a stepfather instead of true incest. Grace initially refused arguing the doctor would not have offered to abort Selena Cross's child if it weren't to do, due to the incest factor. But in the end, she made the change. It took 13 months from the day Grace signed until the book was on the shelves. Howard Goodkin, who worked in book advertising, advised Kitty Messner to invest in a publicist for the novel. He recommended Bud Brandt, a press agent for CBS television. Brandt promoted TV shows like the $64,000 Question and Mike Wallace's talk show Nightbeat, especially the program where Harry Belafonte appeared. Kitty paid Brandt $5,000 to publicize Peyton Place. After he read the novel, he called it a dirty book. Bud Brandt and Howard Goodkin visited Grace at her home that she affectionately dubbed the It'll Do. The men assumed they were meeting some traditional housewife. Instead, they saw a house that was ramshackle, cluttered with dishes and remnants of hasty meals, prepared outside the Better Homes and Garden Ideal. In a hurry to tidy up, Grace picked up what she thought was a Brillo pad. It turned out to be a dead mouse. Grace took Howard and Bud to the local dive bars and shared the local scandals. Grace pointed out a man and a woman who had lost their spouses. The spouses had been having an affair. His wife and her husband, Grace had explained, had an affair. One time they met and left the car running on the ice. The ice melted and they drowned. Grace drove by a house and told the publicist a girl lived there who owned underwear with the days of the week embroidered on them. When Tuesday went missing, her father beat the crap out of her. The big-time New York men were surprised to learn that small-town America differed from a Norman Rockwell painting. Grace told the publicity men that her husband was about to lose his job. One of the men quipped that it was too bad it wasn't because of her book. Grace sensed the possible story there. She replied, well, in a way, it was because of the novel. And like that, they had an angle. Press releases drew headlines about the small-town principal fired because of his wife's racy novel. It was a story with legs. 
It confirmed the view of conservative small towns like the one Grace created in Peyton Place. Publicity also played up the angle of the housewife, hoping to appeal to married women across the country who dreamed of one day writing a novel in their spare time. Grace was anything but the Donna Reed type. She eschewed makeup and dresses. Grace lived in men's shirts, jeans, and trainers. Her jacket photo was proof that the author had no interest in conforming to dominant views of femininity. Kitty wanted a series of photos to promote the book. Grace staged the shots in her friend Laurie's farmhouse. Laurie worked for a local newspaper and had their photographer take the the photos. Grace posed in front of her typewriter, wearing her signature plaid shirt and jeans and her hair pulled back in a ponytail. The photos from the session led to Grace being called Pandora in blue jeans after Kitty's secretary noticed Grace opened things up like Pandora's box. The image is recreated in the Hollywood production for a voiceover with Allison sitting at the typewriter in the same pose, wearing a similar style. The novel by Grace Metallius sold more copies than Gone with the Wind before it went to paperback. Printers had trouble keeping up with demands for the racy novel. Once it was published in the fall of 1956, it was everywhere. It was banned outright in Canada and several states in America. Some small town libraries posted signs which announced it wasn't on their shelves go elsewhere to another town. It was widely read in college dorms, army barracks, high schools, among the PTA, civic groups, and ladies who lunch. Babysitters looked for copies hidden behind the bookshelf. Parents looked for copies under their kid's mattress. One month after publication, Hollywood came calling. Jerry Walt, an independent producer for 20th Century Fox, wanted to buy the rights. His deal at Fox gave him the freedom to purchase properties to develop with the use of the studio and and their distribution. Some critics liked to paint Jerry Wald as some kind of soulless Hollywood shark, but he made his reputation as a producer by committing to woman's pictures. He believed in them. He felt there was no such thing as a washed-up actress, only bad scripts. Jerry Wald was the man who facilitated Joan Crawford's incredible comeback after she left MGM with the Oscar win for Mildred Pierce and another nomination for Possessed in 1947. Grace rang her attorney, who was suddenly more attentive to his housewife client. When she went into New York City to sign, the lawyer noted it was unusual for a contract to include the entire rights without some provision for a larger sum if the picture proved to be a big hit. Fox asked for the film's rights, plus television and the rights to the name Peyton Place. They offered $75,000 up front with a total of $250,000 payout. Grace, who had been struggling for po- in poverty for years, couldn't see beyond the six-figure number. She was keen to sign. The attorney tried to get her to set up a trust fund for her children. He asked how much she would need to live on. Grace initially said she could get by on $18,000 a year, but then quickly asked if that meant she would have no control or access to the money. 
When he replied that the whole, that was the whole point of a trust, Grace dismissed the idea. She had never had that much money in her life. Who could blame her? Grace made a splash when she pulled up in front of the Beverly Hills Hilton Hotel on a Sunday night. She had driven across country with her lover, TJ, and her three children. During a stop in New Mexico, she bought them all novelty Western outfits. They were still wearing the outfits, now a little ripe and dusty, when they strolled in. And someone made a comment about, ooh, Texas oil money. Grace took the bait. When the bellboys escorted the group upstairs to their rooms, Grace fawned over the indoor plumbing in a fake Texas twang. Hired as a story consultant on Peyton Place, Grace assumed she would be given an office in the studio and would help to write the script. But the only thing waiting for her in 20th Century Fox was a photo shoot with Jerry Wald. She sat in casting calls one day, but was appalled by Wald's abrupt manner with the young actresses. He told them, walk, turn, lift up your skirt, then quickly dismissed the hopefuls with the usual, don't call us, we'll call you. Grace thought he treated the women like cattle. She was included in one story conference. She wasn't impressed by the level of brainstorming. One man suggested Red Skelton for a part in the picture. Someone else suggested Pat Boone. Another noted that they might come up with a song for Pat to sing. Grace replied sarcastically, they could call the number the Peyton Place Blues. The men in the room took her seriously. Hollywood seemed provincial and straight-laced to the author. Grace thought the place was packed with people full of fear, afraid they might lose their job or their position. She was impressed by a chance meeting, though, in the studio with Cary Grant, who knew who she was immediately and greeted her by name. Oh, hello, Grace. How are you? Of course he did. He's Cary Grant. And she was very taken after she had lunch one day with Frank Sinatra. Grace was dismayed by the Hollywood beauty standards, where, she noted, all the women were blondes, brunettes, or redheads. She hadn't seen any women who had plain brown hair like her own. She recalled, nor did I see one who could be presumed to wear a size 32A brassiere. One afternoon, Grace went to Romanoff's to meet with Jerry Wald and John Michael Hayes, the screenwriter who made his mark writing for Hitchcock. Hayes started off on the wrong foot. He asked Grace if Peyton Place was autobiographical. Grace tried not to explode and replied, pardon me? Hayes repeated the question. Instead of saying anything, Grace threw her Bloody Mary in his face. The underlying assumption behind the question, as far as she was concerned, was that she lacked the imaginative faculty to write fiction. Her feeble lady brain wasn't unique enough to make something up. It must have been her life story. Later, Grace tried to put a spin on her failure to mesh with Hollywood's expectations. The whole trouble with me in Hollywood, she wrote in a magazine feature, was that we did not know each other's language. She thought they were running a flesh market. They thought she was a dowdy nut who should return to the farm. When Grace wrote about her success, she always placed it in clear material terms. She wrote the book because she needed the money. She confessed in one ma magazine article that she hated to read anyone say it was hard to have money, how difficult it was when you're a success. 
For Grace, money meant that all the other problems in life were easier to handle once you didn't have to worry about the basics, like where your next meal was coming from. Grace recalled that she had $20 a week to feed two kids and, or sorry, three kids and two adults before she sold that book. They had no running water in the house, so her first thought every day was how to stretch limited supplies and split a quart of milk for three kids to have cereal in the morning. They had lettuce and tomato sandwiches for lunch and spaghetti for dinner. Director Mark Robson stopped over in Gilmanton scouting for locations. Grace entertained him and the cameraman when they came to visit. The production team felt Gilmanton wasn't cinematic enough and kept looking. They finally settled on Camden, Maine for exterior shots. The folks in Gilmanton still hadn't recovered from the invasion of reporters who had descended on the town looking for the real Peyton Place once the novel was published. By contrast, half the town in Camden showed up when the Hollywood crew started to look for extras. When Peyton Place was a hit at the box office, Jerry Wald asked Grace to write a treatment for a sequel. Grace was struggling to meet her publisher's deadline for another novel called The Tight White Collar and turned him down. But then the offer kept getting bigger. Grace was afraid to say no to such a big fat check. She wrote the treatment even though the characters were as good as dead to her. But the result was a mess. Grace had slipped into bad habits of heavy drinking and heavy spending, encouraged by her lover TJ, who she later married. Jerry Wall needed a team of screenwriters to salvage Grace's incoherent treatment. Her downward spiral continued until she died when she was only 39 years old in 1964 of liver failure. Peyton Place bookends the worst chapter in Lana Turner's life. Her relationship with Johnny Stompanato from April 1957 to April 1958 was a terrible scandal. But the scandal was elastic. It fit whatever shape you wanted to fill in the headlines. It was the story of a woman and her child endangered by a gangster, or it was the story of a capricious star who killed a man in a fit of jealousy. Just before Lana started work on Peyton Place, she received a series of phone calls from a man she didn't know. She never took the calls directly. Lana's makeup man, Del Armstrong, intercepted one and told Lana the man just wanted to send flowers and surely there was nothing wrong with that. The flowers arrived, along with a note inviting her to dinner, signed John Steele. Lana ignored the note, unaccustomed to invitations from strange men. She gave word of the studio that she didn't want to accept any of his calls. But John Steele kept ringing. A barrage of notes arrived in the studio. He sent enough flowers to choke the oxygen out of her dressing room. He just wanted to meet for a drink if she wouldn't agree to dinner. And he gave a reference by saying he knew Ava Gardner. Worn down by his persistence, Lana replied that he could stop by the house if he rang first for a drink. He turned up the night she had designated, but he didn't call first. Lana was annoyed, but since he was there, she let him in. John Steele was tall and athletic. He was persistent, which Lana took as a sign of romantic ardor. Next, he sent jewelry, including a gold watch with her initials engraved so she would feel compelled to keep it and wouldn't return it. 
Lana wears the gold leaf design watch and earrings that he gave her in Peyton Place. Years later, whenever it would pop up on TV, Lana would cringe when she saw herself wearing gifts from him. A friend, after a while, reached out to ask if she knew that the man she was dating by this time, who he really was. Lana knew what he told her. His name was John Steele, and he was a gift shop owner. The friend told her his real name was Johnny Stompanato. He was a notorious mobster who worked for Mickey Cohen. Lana didn't heed the warning. She knew Mickey Cohen as a businessman who was friends with her sec- second husband, Stephen Crane, who was a, a, you know, a nightclub owner. Before you say, oh, well, Lana should have had alarm bells ringing and run a mile from this one, keep in mind that gangsters were not exactly unfamiliar in Hollywood circles. Hoods like Benny Siegel and Pat DiCicco had a movie star glamour about them that opened doors in the film colony. Gloria Vanderbilt had married Pat DiCicco, and the Countess de Frasso had Bugsy Siegel on the guest list of her swanky parties. Johnny conducted a full-blown campaign to win Lana. In his love-bombing stage, he was generous, attentive, a great lover, flashy, and good with Cheryl. He seemed to know everything about Lana, like her favorite foods and what she liked. He bought the horse she had ridden in the MGM picture Diane, a beauty called Rowena for Cheryl, who was in a horsey phase at the time. Lana didn't know that Johnny had a reputation for seducing women and then taking their money by flattery or blackmail. That was in addition to his role as an enforcer and bagman for Mickey Cohen. Johnny planned to use Lana as a way to become a Hollywood producer. Like many wise guys, he knew that Hollywood was one big racket. Pat DiCicco did it, so why not him? At one point, worried about what the relationship would do to her career, Lana stopped seeing him and ignored his calls. She was worried about his temper and started locking her bedroom door at night. One night, Johnny came in the house through a window, entered her bedroom, and put a pillow over her face. The love bombing phase was replaced by a campaign of terror that continued until Good Friday, 1958. He forced her to let him accompany her when she was filming a picture in London. Stompanato became suspicious about Lana carrying on with her co-star in that picture, Sean Connery. Johnny was supposed to keep away from the studio, but one day he turned up and pulled a gun on Connery. Instead of folding like a vain actor, Sean Connery knocked Stompanato out with one punch. Later, he took his rage out on Lana. Johnny threatened to kill her, her mother, and her daughter. Johnny choked Lana with his bare hands. Annie, Lana's maid, intervened and saved her life. Lana and Annie then huddled together in the bedroom once he stormed out. Johnny's attack left Lana with a damaged larynx. She could barely speak and needed weeks to recover while the production shot around her. Scotland Yard intervened and deported Johnny Stompanato. Somehow, he learned her travel plans and met her her plane at Copenhagen before she transferred to Acapulco, where Lana had booked time to rest. 
Johnny followed her there and didn't let her out of his sight for weeks. He even followed her to the bathroom. Anywhere she went, he was there. He raped Lana at gunpoint. He threatened her with that gun all the time and threatened her family. Lana drank more and more to blot him out, to quiet the panic and fear that she was living with. While she was trapped with him, Lana heard the news that she received the Academy Award nomination for Peyton Place. Johnny tried to bully her into taking him with her on Oscar night. For this one thing, Lana stood firm. She would not allow him to endanger her career. No way would she turn up on the big night with a gangster on her arm. Even though Lana didn't win, the nightmare the night was a triumph. By Hollywood custom, the bigger stars do not table hop. You sit there and wait for well-wishers and admirers to stop by and pay respects. And this is what happened to Lana. Lana wore a white lace mermaid gown that accentuated her golden brown tan from Acapulco. She presented an award on camera, then sat at her table with Cheryl and Mildred, while the likes of Cary Grant came over to say hello, and I'm sure Cary had some kind of comment on her fabulous tan. Everything was perfect until she returned to the hotel she was staying in, until the new house would be ready. Johnny was there, purple with rage. He beat her up again, despite Lana begging him that Cheryl was in the next room and was bound to hear them. She was never going to be rid of him. There was no escape, he told her. He threatened death before, and now he added a little twist. He wouldn't just kill her. He would carve up her face so no one would ever want to look at her again. On Good Friday, while Lana was settling in the new house, he started to bully and terrorize her again. He was going to scar her face if she tried to leave him, and if he couldn't do it, he would pay someone else who would. It would be the end of her picture career, and through the horror, Lana worried how she would support her mother and daughter. Cheryl was outside the bedroom door. Lana shouted for her to go away, not to listen to them. In Lana's bathroom, she sat on the sink counter. Johnny had slung garment bags on hangers over his shoulder. Lana thought it must have looked as though he held a weapon and was ready to strike. The next thing she knew, Cheryl entered the bathroom and hit Johnny in the stomach. It looked like she punched the gangster, but Cheryl plunged a long kitchen knife into his torso. He dropped to the floor and gurgled. Lana rang her physician, who attempted to resuscitate Johnny with a shot of adrenaline to the heart. It didn't work. He was dead. The doctor told Lana to ring an ambulance, and then he told her to ring Jerry Geisler, the Hollywood attorney best known for helping Errol Flynn beat statutory rape, and the man who got Busby Berkeley off when he killed three people and maimed a fourth while driving drunk. Stompanato was dead. 14-year-old Cheryl was taken in custody. Reporters went berserk. Photographers were in the house taking pictures of the body before the police arrived. They swarmed around the house. Headlines either made it a lurid tale about Hollywood debauchery, or else it was mother and child tormented by a hoodlum. Lana was no longer under the protection of MGM, but even Eddie Mannix and Howard Strickling lacked the power to make something like this go away. 
A few days after Johnny's death, Mickey Cohen paid someone to break into Johnny's apartment and retrieve Lana's love letters. Mickey gave the letters to Walter Winchell. Newspapers across the country published Lana's letters full of endearments. A week after the incident, the inquest ruled that Cheryl's actions were justifiable homicide. Cheryl was given an additional two weeks in custody and made a ward of the court. After release, she would be held with her grandmother or live with her grandmother as custodian. Mickey raised a big stink in the press. He told a reporter, this is the first time I've ever heard of a guy being convicted of his own murder. He was convinced Lana stabbed Johnny and had Cheryl take the fall. But I wonder how could Lana conceal a weapon and use it against Johnny when he watched her like a hawk, even in the bathroom? He would have seen her coming, but he didn't suspect Cheryl. Cheryl, who had been sexually assaulted by Lex Barker for years while Lana was married to him, had probably had enough of predatory men and put her foot down. She carried a burden of guilt for decades until she met her partner, Josh. Josh put it in perspective. She thought Cheryl was heroic, a hero who protected her mother. That's the only way to read this case. Lana collapsed under the worry over her daughter, her future, how she would pay the bills. Would she ever work again? Stars have been banished for less, and she was a wreck. After Stompanato was killed, ticket sales for Peyton Place went up by 30%. Audiences thought they might gain some insights about Lana and Cheryl by watching Lana and Diane Varsi. Lana moved house again and waited for a job offer. One day, producer Ross Hunter contacted her. He wanted Lana to star in a remake of Imitation of Life. Lana bounced back from the scandal with the biggest moneymaker of her career. But the scandal followed Lana for the rest of her life, and Cheryl's too. The story was so big, Hollywood made a film version in 1964 with Where Love Is Gone, starring Susan Hayward and Betty Davis. The melodramas that Lana Turner starred in paled in comparison to what she lived through. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Inside Peyton Place, The Life of Grace Metallius by Emily Toth, published in 1981. Unbuttoning America, a biography of Peyton Place by Artis Cameron, published in 2015. Lana, The Lady, The Legend, The Truth by Lana Turner, published in 1982. Lana, The Memories, The Myths, The Movies by Cheryl Crane and Cindy De La Haas, published in 2008. Detour, a Hollywood story by Cheryl Crane with Cliff Jar, published in 1988. Always Lana, The Private Secrets Behind the Public Face of Lana Turner by Taylor Perrow, published in 1982. Debbie, My Life by Debbie Reynolds with David Patrick Columbia, published in 1988. You can find a series of interviews that Lillian Burns gave in 1996 on YouTube. Join me next time for episode 99 when I talk about Barbara Stanwyck and Ladies of Leisure from 1930. You can support Sassmouth Dames with a nice review on iTunes or by becoming a monthly patron on Patreon. Thanks very much.